One of the things that I enjoy about uh, discipleship camp is reading the, uh, the testimonies on applications. So first-time applicants tell their story. Um, and I, I, I encourage uh, more information than less, uh, simply because uh, I, I enjoy these salvation uh, share how the Lord has worked in their life. There are, I suppose, different kinds of conversion stories. Uh, there are those we perhaps categorize as crisis conversions, and you may or may not have come to the Lord in that way, uh, with dramatic circumstances, sometimes uh, very difficult or terrible circumstances. But uh, Many, uh, it's not like a thunderstorm that comes upon them suddenly with uh, hail and thunder and lightning and, and pouring rain, but it's maybe more like a, a gentle rain, slowly and over a period of time. Um, for myself, it was a bit of a crisis conversion, something that came on uh, to me suddenly over a period of just a few weeks but much had been uh, done before that by the Lord in my heart what I've observed is from other people and in my own experiences is that often if our conversion could be categorized as a crisis conversion it was because we had resisted the Lord in unbelief for a time and so he keeps calling. Aren't we glad that he does? He keeps drawing. But it gets louder and stronger. We're going to look at a couple of people today who uh, had very different life experiences. One man is having a dream while he's asleep and the other is having a nightmare while he's awake. <clears throat> but uh, surely they uh, came to the Lord in different ways. Now one of the things that we, we put on the discipleship camp application was the question after your salvation story is, how has your life changed? Okay. And then the next question, how have you served him since becoming a believer? Now, that first hymn that we say, you remember it? Love lifted me. In loving kindness, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim. And from the depths of sin and shame, through grace he lifted me. So the Lord comes to us, and he calls us, and he draws us. He called me long before I heard, before my sinful heart was stirred, but when I took him at his word, forgiven, he lifted me. His brow was pierced with many a thorn, his hands by cruel nails were torn, where from my guilt, when from my guilt and grief forlorn in love he lifted me. Now on a higher plane I dwell, and with my soul I know tis well. 
Yet how or why, I cannot tell, he should have lifted me. So it, 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 it unfolds this, this drama. So the Lord draws us, and this happens oftentimes a while before we respond. And in my case, uh, because I waited so long, things got louder. But thankfully, uh, I did respond. Uh, we come to understand the, the gospel that Christ died for my sins, not just for the sins of the world in general, but for me personally. So for a sinner to come to know the Lord, there comes about a, a realization or an awareness of personal sin. And then... <clears throat> of who Jesus is and what he did. We're going to turn this morning to Acts chapter 9. And when you hear Acts 9, you think, oh, I know that. It's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But tucked away in his conversion story, which was definitely a crisis conversion, is another man's story. Uh, We'll call him... Ananias of Damascus. Now, we're we're probably familiar today with the term bucket list. Any of you have a bucket list? I don't know that I really do, but uh, there is a list of things, of people, that I would like to talk to in heaven and get the fuller story. Do you have a list like that? Kind of a mental list? I do. I don't know. Maybe somebody should come up with a good term for that list. But uh, believe it or not, Ananias is one of the guys I'd like to talk to. Because I've, for some time I've found this account fascinating. Uh, it says a little bit, but you wonder about the full story. So in Acts chapter 9, we'll divide this first 19 verses into two parts. The first we call threats and murder, and the second part, fear and trembling. So we begin the chapter this way. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So it says that Saul was breathing threats and murder. So this is talking about his his speech, his rhetoric. Now we're we're in a 
Well, in a continuous political campaign the last four years, but it certainly is, is heating up now, and we just learned a Supreme Court justice has passed away, and so that's going to add even more things to it, but there's a lot of political rhetoric out there. So we understand what, what what's going on. We have these riots that have been taking place across the country for some uh, weeks and, and months, and uh, just... So he comes breathing, it says, threats and murder. So that's how he was He was behaving. We can describe Saul here as one who was vigorous and passionate about his calling, which was to eradicate heretics in Judaism, which he considered the followers of Jesus to be. <coughs> so... He believed he was doing God's service by going after these people. In uh, the previous chapter, in verse 3, it says that Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. So that's what he was doing. In the previous chapter when Stephen is stoned, Saul is there. It seems to be a leader of this group that we're putting him to death, and it just describes him as a young man. And so Saul is coming after the Christians. This was not a job that uh, he was offered. It wasn't that the leaders in Jerusalem says, we need somebody to do a real messy job here. We need to deal with these people, so we're looking for... No. You notice it says, he went to them and says, give me the job. Uh, give me a warrant, an authority from uh, the priests, the religious leaders, to arrest any Jew who professes follow Jesus. So with these documents, this legal permission, he leaves Judea and he goes to the synagogues of Damascus. And there was a large Jewish community in Damascus and uh, who knows how many synagogues there were, but he has letters from the, the high priest to them saying, tell this man, anyone you know in your community, in your synagogue, who's a follower of Jesus. And if he would find them, he would arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem for trial. So he's traveling to Damascus, and uh, we don't know how many men he had with him, but some. And suddenly at midday, boom, a a flash of light, and uh, he falls to the ground from his mount, whatever he was riding, a horse or a donkey, and no doubt grabbing his eyes. I don't know if you've ever injured your eye. Uh, We were talking a little bit earlier about someone who had surgery, intricate surgery on an eye. That's amazing. But on on the whole surface of your body, there probably isn't any organ that is more sensitive than your eyeball just as a very sensitive and uh, very sensitive to light. 
Who hasn't had the experience where you're, you're in bed asleep and maybe you should have gotten up and somebody comes in the room and flips on the light switch and the bright light hits you and you, ah, you immediately cover up. When I, when I was uh, a teenager, I was helping my dad one day in the winter time. We were <coughs> cleaning out the barn and, and we'd hauled out this load of manure with a team of horses. And we were going through a deep snow cut and the horses bogged down. So we got him going again and I'm whipping the horse from the ground, got my pony, and they take off at a gallop and, and I'm trying to mount this pony on the run bareback with nothing but a rope to hang on to, which I could do. However, on this unfortunate occasion, the brass ring at the end of that rope, as I'm trying to leap onto this galloping pony, hit me right in the left eye. Now, in those days, we didn't have these neat plastic shatterproof lenses in our glasses, but they were actually glass. <laughs> Boom! hits my eye. I'm telling you, I was no longer mounted at that point. <laughs> but I was in the dirt clawing at my eye to get the glass out. So then the next thing you do, you go to the emergency room, and what do they do there? They lay you on your back on a table with this bright light above you the size of Texas, and this doctor trying to pluck pieces of glass out of your eye. You know, the eye is pretty sensitive. So this hits... Saul, I have no doubt at all that it could easily knock him off his mount to the ground. But this was dramatic. And uh, he also heard a voice calling out to him. <clears throat> Why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? I am Jesus. What do you want me to do? Get up and go into town and I'll tell you later. This is an interesting part of the story. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but uh, he doesn't tell him what he's, what's ahead of him, what he's supposed to do for several days. Let's him think about this. So he, he does. He goes into town. The men who were traveling with him, they heard the voice, but they didn't see anything. So apparently they didn't see the flash and were not similarly affected by it. So he gets up from the ground and uh, he can't see a thing. So they led him into Damascus and it says he was three days without sight and he neither ate nor drank. The two most important questions that everyone needs to answer is, who is Jesus? And then, what do you want me to do, Lord? And this is what Saul is considering as he spends those three days fasting and praying. Because the realization has come to him so suddenly that he's got it all backwards. He's got everything upside down. That Jesus really is the Messiah. 
He really is the Son of God. And the leaders of Israel have crucified him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and and verse 13, First of all, in verse, beginning in verse 12, I said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So he's done all of this for some time. And now he finds out he was all wrong. But he says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief, in unbelief. Now there was, as we begin the next section, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now this Ananias, and Ananias is a common name, common Jewish name, uh, and there, it, there are others named Ananias in the, in the scripture, but he appears just very briefly in these next uh, ten verses, and then we never hear of him again. But he's an interesting character. <clears throat> the Lord speaks to him in a vision, and from other language in the text, he's, uh, he's, he's asleep at night. So in a vision, a dream, uh, God speaks to him. And he responds, here I am, Lord. He acknowledges God's uh, voice to him. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. So we meet a man named Ananias. He seems to be a simple believer here. We've never heard of him anywhere else in the New Testament. And he just appears briefly here in the pages of, of Scripture in this place. 
Who was he? And why did God uh, call him for this task, and why do this at all anyway? Who do you most identify with in this story? Are uh, someone who, uh, like the great apostle that Saul became, or just an ordinary person like Ananias? Uh, I think I identify with Ananias. How many people in the world have heard of North Dakota? How many people in the United States have ever heard of Minot? (laughs) And how many people have ever heard of me? Or you? Certainly no. Great star in God's service. But Ananias, a faithful brother, responds to the call of God. He's obedient. So in verses 11 and 12, God gives him some simple instructions. You've got to read between the lines here. But he says to him, get up, tells us he was in bed, and go to the street called Straight. Okay, got that. Inquire at the house of Judas. Okay, Judas. For a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, here Ananias begins to have a little trouble. He has some objections here. He says, wait, wait, wait a minute. I've heard about this guy. He's a killer. I've heard about what he did in Jerusalem. Everybody heard about Stephen. And now he has warrants to arrest us. But Jesus' command is go. Now what the Lord says to him after that could not have made any sense to Ananias. He wouldn't have understood it. And you notice something else. He hasn't even told Saul this yet. Now Saul, we know, has had a vision saying that someone named Ananias is going to come to you and he's going to lay his hands on you and pray for you so that you can get your sight back. Now, Saul of Tarsus was a very proud man. A very proud man. What happens to a person if, in this culture, in this day, if they are blind? Well, we, we encountered num- numerous cases of blindness in the Gospels. What was the lot of a blind person? I mean, what was their life like? Well, we find them, they're beggars. How are they going to make a living just to feed themselves and and house themselves and support themselves? How can they do this? It was a a very 
humble, even humiliating existence to be uh, crippled or blind. And now, Saul, a rising star in Judaism, a vigorous and passionate man about his religion, is blind. We can't appreciate how humbling that was to him. And then Jesus plucks this simple man named Ananias, a believer, Jewish, yes, to be a part of this story. Now, clearly the Lord could have just healed him himself after three days. Could have made the blindness temporary. But why bring Ananias into this? Some nobody. Well, The Lord is bringing a simple Christian in and making the man whom we know as the great Apostle Paul dependent on him. Ever wonder why God worked it that way? I wonder about that. But I like it. Binds us all together. But notice something else about what the Lord has in his dealings with Ananias here. So Ananias has some logical concerns here, does he not? Because they have heard that he's coming. And every Christian in Damascus would really like to keep a low profile about now. I don't want to be seen by this guy or those with him I don't want my name to be dropped. But now the Lord has said, go. He's, he's concerned about this. And he, he says this to Ananias. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Couldn't have made any sense to Ananias. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias responds to, to the Lord's command, go. Now, some things we want to note about this. In the Lord's dealing, and we can follow this throughout Scripture, he rarely explains himself in great detail in advance before he expects your obedience. Do you get that? So, as we follow the Lord, it's not, okay, when I understand where this is going, when I, when I understand the plan, when it makes sense to me, then I'll, then I'll do it. That isn't the way it's supposed to be. Because God is God, and we are his people. So, are there things then that you do as a Christian in, in obedience, but you don't know how this is going to turn out, or how it's going to end up, or, and it doesn't even make sense to some other people? Certainly that was the case here. Think of Mrs. Ananias. I assume there was a Mrs. Ananias. I imagine 
you know, we don't know whether he was a young young man in his 30s or 40s or whether he was uh, uh, 50 or 60 like, like me. But I imagine there's a Mrs. Ananias, right? Remember, the Lord's woke him up at night and he's getting up. Ananias, where are you going? Brenda asked me that a lot. <laughs> We're home alone there around the house and I get up, leave the room to do something, and she asks, where are you going? I said, I'm going to heaven when I die. <laughs> but Ananias, where are you going? She says, God has spoken to me. Well, what did he say? He told me to go to an address up on Straight Street and see Saul of Tarsus. No! She must have wailed. He's never coming back if he goes there. That's the end. You you can't be serious. No, I'm serious. Apparently, if uh, God ever taps you on the shoulder in the middle of the night, you'll know it's him. So just go with that. So he gets up to go. And I imagine she begins praying fervently. Afraid she'll never see him again. I can envision him. It's still dark out. He's walking up the street. In the Jewish community, he, he, he's probably lived there a long time. He knows the streets. He knows where Straight Street is. He, he, he might have even known Judas, who lived at this address. But he went there. And I, I imagine him walking along and turning this over and over in his mind. He's a chosen vessel? An instrument of mine? Bear my name before Gentiles, kings, sons of Israel? What does this mean? Uh, a faithful disciple does not Delay until he can reason things out perfectly and understand the end from the beginning before he obeys the word of God. Keep, keep that in mind. But he's turning this over as he goes. It's good. He arrives at the address. Knocks, I imagine. Someone opens the door and says, What do you want? Uh, <clears throat> my name is Ananias, and he's pulled inside the house. He's expecting you. Oh boy, this is it. Takes him to another room. Knocks on the door. Sticks his head in and says, Ananias is here. Send him in, send him in. The door opens wide and Ananias is looking in there. But his eyes are big. <laughs> and there he makes out in the darkness, there's not even a candle lit in there. There's a little man sitting on the floor, looking disheveled, pale. His eyes are red from crying. Tear streaks on his cheeks. Judas sets a 
lamp in there. And Saul gets up from the floor, and Ananias is looking at him, and there is the great Saul of Tarsus, the scourge of all believers. I imagine his heart is pounding, the adrenaline is pumping. And Saul says, Are you Ananias? Yes. And he begins to tell him his story. Because if you if you look at the, you know, the, you get at this very brief synopsis here, surely the the events of, of the of three days ago were related to Ananias by Saul himself, not by the Lord in advance of this meeting. And so he tells him the story, Ananias, three days ago, as we were coming to Damascus, I had orders from the chief priest to arrest any who followed Jesus. And Ananias said, yeah, I've heard about that. And as I was on my way at midday, when the sun is the brightest, a bright flash of light from heaven struck me to the ground and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, why are you doing this? And I said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus. You are persecuting. Ananias is standing there in wide mouth wonder. As Saul goes on to tell him, I've been thinking and praying for three days. Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. Ananias is amazed. He tells him that uh, I had a vision that someone named Ananias would come and lay his hands on me and pray for me and i get my, my eyesight back. Ananias, in wonder and amazement at what God has done, lays his hands on him. And notice what he calls him? Brother Saul. Short time before that, he was killer, murderer, monster. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road while you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So now Ananias understands that when the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine. Okay, God's going to do something with this guy. And he's now one of us. Now that makes some sense. He has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we've seen earlier in the book of Acts, if you remember the flow of the story here, how when the gospel came to the Samaritans at the preaching of Philip, Peter and John went down there to find out what's going on here. 
And when they saw that the Lord was saving the Samaritans, they prayed for them and laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, we have kind of a flipped scenario here where a man who would become an apostle has trusted in the Lord and a nobody we never hear from again named Ananias comes and prays for him and he receives the Holy Spirit. You've got you to gotta love the way the Lord does things. So we have God's plan presented first to Ananias. Now Saul's going to get well versed in this in the, in, the, in the coming days. But notice what else it said about him. Okay, We, we get the part chosen instrument. He's going to be an apostle. Uh, he's going to bear my name before the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. We, we understand that he testified before kings, uh, Caesar anyway, and governors, uh, Felix, so forth after he was arrested. The, the nation of Israel, he did all of that. But notice verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now how many of you, when you trusted in Christ, what was before you in your mind is, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus and I'm going to suffer for him. Well, is that the first thing you thought of? It wasn't for me. <laughs> Who thinks of that? When we come to the Lord, we uh, we may be focused upon the blessing that is to come to us through the forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt. The burden of sin that has been on us is taken away. God's forgiveness is marvelous. His, his cleansing is amazing. But how many of us think about suffering for Christ after that? That's not something we like to do. But that if that was the lot of an apostle, should there not be any suffering for us as well? What are some things that we can apply to our life here, and to our own experience? as we look at uh, Ananias and Mansoul. Are, are you available to the Lord? Ananias was available. And God called. He said, I'm here. He said, go. He went. Are you willing? Let me ask you a harder question. What are you most afraid of in your Christian life? What are you most afraid of? 
What is it that you really don't want to do in service for Christ as a, as his disciple? Now, did Ananias feel adequate to the task? I submit to you he did not. He was not, he was not comfortable with this. But he did understand the Lord spoke to me and he said, go. Do you encounter in your reading of the scriptures and of hearing the teaching of the word and so forth, and the Lord's dealings with you, you encounter things, you learn things. Sometimes there's things, yeah, I'm glad to do that. Sometimes, yeah, that's going to be tough, but I can, I can do that. And sometimes there are things, oh, I don't want to do that. It is a natural tendency for all of us, it's human nature, to avoid that which we do not feel adequate or comfortable doing. Things that we could say, I got this. No problem. But then there are things that say, oh man, I can't do that. You have any of those? See, we don't we don't move out in faith on only the things we're comfortable with. Sometimes the hard things too, because that's where we have to trust God for an adequacy that we don't feel we naturally possess. There are things we're good at, things we're not good at. There are things we feel pretty comfortable doing, and there are other things not so much. Is there anything in your life that you're afraid of in your Christian life? I'd encourage you to take courage from Ananias. He didn't understand everything. He didn't know how it was going to turn out. But what he did understand is that the Lord said, go. Anybody can get that. Go. So he went. So now we never see this fellow again in Scripture. But he's left us a little example. A simple, ordinary believer who nobody ever heard of before or after, but yet, look at what God did with him. He prayed for Saul to regain his sight, to receive the Holy Spirit, and connected this man to the body of Christ in Damascus. And you can read what he did after that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for example of, of little people that we can relate to. We feel that way. And yet, do sometimes amazing things 
by simple, faithful obedience, even if you don't understand it all, even if we feel scared, inadequate, or uncomfortable, yet to obey your word, and then to experience the joy of what you do through us, like Ananias did. How happy he was when he learned of what you had done in Saul's life. God, we pray we'll have many experiences in our Christian life like that, where we step out in faith and experience the joy of your working in our lives. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.